Business used to be the purview of the right, right? We looked at business leaders as, you know, evil, greedy Republicans who didn't want to be regulated. And now, really, if we're honest, the businesses that hold the most influence and sway are the purview of the left. Tech companies are the purview of the left. And so there's been this complete upending or reversal. And I think a lot of companies are filled with young left people. And I think that leaders are anxious to satisfy the employee population and they apply a lot of pressure. They're not shy. And I think companies are eager to prove that they're not like the oil companies of the past. Like we are business with a kinder face, you know, and we are business that cares. And so I think they're really eager to tout their, you know, woke credentials. And it all seems to make sense when you're like in this loop, this closed loop of people who want to do the same. And you don't realize how it's going to read or it's going to land. And you do a Pepsi commercial that's so stupid that it seems just sort of amazing that anybody would have thought that was ever a good idea. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Jennifer Say, is a little different from a lot of the guests we have on this show. She's not an artist or a journalist or a podcaster. She's in the corporate world, or at least she was in the corporate world until her employer, Levi Strauss and Company, pushed her out after more than 20 years at the company, including more than seven as chief marketing officer and then brand president. Jen was in line to become CEO of Levi's, but when the COVID pandemic hit, she found herself working from her San Francisco apartment with her four children at home. The youngest two were in preschool, one was in high school, and the oldest came home from college. At that point, she became frustrated by school closures and puzzled about lockdown policies for kids in general. And then she began speaking up about it. This did not sit well with Levi's, and she was warned repeatedly to tone things down. We're going to hear the whole story from Jen, but suffice it to say, she left the company earlier this year, but remained so committed to speaking out that she turned down a $1 million severance package because she didn't want to sign a non-disclosure agreement. In this interview, Jen talks about how social media has blurred the lines between our professional comportment and our personal beliefs. We talk about what it means when corporations take public political stances, how to tell a genuine expression of company values from virtue signaling, and whether any of it actually helps sell products. We also talk about Jen's career as an elite gymnast and how her decision to come forward about abuses in USA Gymnastics several years ago paved the way for her current activism. So here's my conversation with Jennifer Say. Jennifer Say, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me, Megan. It's nice to meet you. You were the chief marketing officer at Levi Strauss and Company. Then you were the brand president. After 21 years at the company, you were on track to potentially become CEO. Needless to say, I, I suppose your persona was very much in line with the ethos of the company. <laughs> you, were, you were on brand. You were also, I think it's relevant to say, a former elite gymnast. You were the women's all-around national champion in 1986. You then went on to Stanford and you rose through the corporate ranks. 
to become a valuable team player. You were a liberal mom. You lived in San Francisco. You had all the right opinions. You tweeted support for Elizabeth Warren, all of that kind of thing. So tell us what happened in 2020. Yes, all of those things are are true. That is an accurate telling of my life story. So in 2020, I had been at Levi's since 1999. So I'd been there a long time. Um, at the beginning of 2020, I was still the CMO. I think I was embarking on my eighth year in that role, which is a very long time for a chief marketing officer. The average tenure for a CMO is about 18 months. We get fired very quickly. Oh, yep. It's a very slippery seat. And, you know, most people don't hold the post as long as, as I did. And, you know, we were in discussions, me and my boss, who was the CEO, Chip Berg about me uh, becoming brand president, which, you know, would basically move me from overseeing, you know, all marketing and communication to overseeing basically anything that had to do with the Levi's brand, including product. Um, So design and merchandising, which is like the business side of product and a bunch of other stuff. And this had been an ongoing conversation for quite a few years. And then COVID happened. I have four kids. I think you mentioned I was a mom, but not that I have quite so many. Two of them, and there's a big age range difference. I have two um, in college at the time. One with one of those was actually still in high school, and then I have two much younger children who are seven and five now. All public school kids, which is unusual. You know, every single one of my peers had their kids in um, in private school. Not just my peers, but everyone that worked for me, et cetera. So COVID hits and even before it hits and there's, you know, talk of schools shutting down, I'm, I'm kind of like, that doesn't make sense. I, you know, I'm watching very closely the data coming out of Italy. If you remember, you know, there was, you know, all these news reports coming first from China and then from Italy. And I kept looking at the age of people that was affected and the average or the median age of death in Italy at the time was over 80. And I kept thinking, well, it's sad and it's awful. And, you know, we need to do what we need to do, but kids are mercifully not really at risk and we need to protect kids as well. And that was clear pretty early on, if I'm remembering. So you're, are you talking about like the kind of first I'm talking like February, 2020, even before school closures were announced. Okay. Yes. My recollection My memory of it is that that was very clear early on, but you could not say that. And it became very clear very early that you could not say that. Everybody was at equal risk. This was an equal opportunity illness. At the same time, you were a granny killer if you, you know, suggested anything other than total lockdown. And I lived in San Francisco at the time. Gavin Newsom is the governor of California. He still is. And he went first and hard at lockdowns and school closures. I think March 13th was the date. And many other cities and states followed. Um, Of of course, at first, schools were announced to be closed only for two weeks. I think just three or four days later, he said they'd be closed for the rest of the spring. So I had a high schooler at home. I had uh, two preschoolers and a college student um, from Berkeley who came home as soon as school shut down. So, you know, four kids at home in an apartment in San Francisco, and of course our office is closed. And I'm still just 
kind of tearing my hair out going, why are we doing this to kids? You know, and we quickly went from the two weeks of closed schools to the whole spring. And I thought, they're not going to open the schools. They're never going to open the schools. I wasn't panicked, but I was very upset about it. <laughs> I'll just and say that. I, sh- I should, I want to ask you, were you doing like Zoom school in addition to your job? Like what was the scene like in your household? Well, it was a bit of a shit show, honestly. I mean, I was working in an apartment in San Francisco, you know, Zoom 24-7, trying to figure out how to work it because, you know, none of us knew really how to do any of this at the time. Our business is you know, every store around the world is closed overnight. I mean, you never think you're going to see business numbers like 70% down. That's a pretty scary kind of scenario to face as a, as a business leader. So, you know, I'm worried about that. My college kid is home. We're sitting at the dining room table. You know, he's doing his college classes. I'm doing my Microsoft Teams meetings at work trying to figure out, you know, what we're going to do. And my high schooler is home also doing Zoom school. And then my two littlest ones were still in preschool, which at first stayed open. Um, It didn't take long for them to shut that down too. Then they closed playgrounds in San Francisco. The beaches were discouraged. They shut the parking lots for the beaches. So, you know, we're in an apartment, no yard. I have a nice apartment. I'm not trying to sort of make it out like, you know, I'm not very lucky and fortunate, but there's four kids at home with and and you know, preschool closed and there's there's nowhere to go with these kids, you know. There's no playgrounds. Those are too dangerous. There's no beaches. People say take your kids for a walk, you know, if you've ever tried to go for a walk with a 3-year-old, that's not exactly their idea of a good time. Um, did and of you, course, I, I yeah. sorry, one quick, I, you know, I live in a city, like I, I, as most cities are, they're integrated, you know, I didn't live in one of the fancier neighborhoods in San Francisco, you know, one block to my right is a public school across the street is a public school. And then a block to my left is uh, public housing. And I, you know, we, we lived a very urban life and I knew that a lot of people were stuck at home in one and two bedroom apartments with many kids. and you know, weren't able to make a living. And I just, the whole thing seemed so crazy to me from the very beginning. So I was very outspoken from the very beginning that I thought none of this made sense. Okay. And by outspoken, are you talking about tweeting mostly or were you bringing this up in a workplace context? All of it. I mean, I wasn't shy because I thought it was so clear. Like I, I really didn't think my view should be that controversial. I mean, I quickly learned clearly Um, but I, I, well, I first started out like arguing with friends and family on Facebook. Right. I had a Twitter (laughs) account. That's like the gateway. As one does. Yes. And that got ugly fast. And, but I, I honestly, I was like, but this, just look at the data. It doesn't make sense. You know, look at the pre, you know, I went down so many rabbit holes. Look at the pre pandemic playbook. It says never close schools. You know, why I'm reading all this is, and well, so are they are these like friends and family members who are just going by what Anthony Fauci was saying like yeah. what was what who were their gurus at at that time? Yeah, it's you know, it's Fauci, it's Gavin, it's the local San Francisco public health officials who were I would say the most conservative of of any across the country. 
It's all of, and just the news, you know, the headlines were everyone's going to die. Bleach your groceries. Don't go outside. I remember going outside and just sort of stepping across the, you know, the, the doorway of my home. It was like apocalyptic in San Francisco. There was no one on the street anywhere. It felt like people really thought if they just went outside their house, they were going to die. And it was scary, but I was like, come on, that, that isn't, I remember having an argument with a family member who said, yeah, well, if mom gets it, she's a goner. She's definitely going to die. And if your mom gets it and I, cause my mother had lung cancer 15 years ago and she had part of a lung removed. And I went and I looked up the data for an older person with a, an affliction as, as she has. And it was still like a 90% recovery rate. Now I'm not saying that I wanted her to get it, but when she was told she had cancer, she was given a less than 5% chance of living. And I said, if we got these numbers, if, if we got this sort of prognosis when she was diagnosed with cancer, we would be thrilled. You know, so it just, it, none of it made sense to me. But I quickly found other like-minded parents that were very concerned across the country. We sort of called ourselves open schools moms. We, you know, created our own little grassroots network. I mean, we all have become in-person friends at this point. Some people do see each other in person. And no one, you know, like I said, in the executive meetings, I conveyed my concerns when they were relevant to our, you know, our business and decisions we were making. And no one, I, I don't think, noticed. I mean, you know, I might have had like 1,200 Twitter followers. It was nothing. Um, but it did sort of build up to a slightly less small following. And eventually somebody at work noticed. And I did get a call. It was probably late spring, or early summer. And I'd kind of been waiting for it. I mean, I was sort of shocked because at this point, I realized, of course, that this was not a view that was considered particularly acceptable, that schools should open. I got the call. It was fairly gentle. It was, you might want to think about maybe not saying some of that stuff. And I said, why? <laughs> I'm still sort of naive at this point. I was like, but, but no, it's true. And I said, are you telling me I have to stop? And this is a peer, so she can't really tell me. And she said, no, I can't really do that, but I would just encourage you to think about it. And I said, okay, I thought about it. So those calls kept coming. You know, that was head of corporate communication. I got one from legal. I got them from HR. They just kept coming, you know, throughout the summer. And I just kept saying the same thing. Are you telling me I have to stop? No, I'm asking you to think about it. When you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. Well, but I'm not speaking on behalf of the company. I'm speaking as a public school mom. And at this point, you know, I'm being asked to be on the local news. So, you know, it's not just Twitter. You know, I'm on the local news. I think at some point in the early fall, I wrote an op-ed. You know, I, I've now been invited to meetings with the mayor's office because the mayor at this point is even trying to push for the schools to open. She ultimately sued the school district to get schools open. So I'm like in the San Francisco conversation. But the intensity of the calls from Levi's, you know, it it accelerates. <laughs> um, but I don't stop. I take a break now and then, but I don't because I'm so outraged. And I'll tell you what just set me on fire <laughs> was in the fall, we all thought schools were going to open, the private schools open, and the public schools did not. And that's when I just, I was like, I'm not stopping. This is, 
the most structurally classist and racist thing I can imagine. All of the poor children in San Francisco are being locked out of school and all of the kids with means are going to school. This is what we talk about when we talk about structural issues. And so I, no matter how much pushback I got, and I knew at this point, I did understand that there was the chance that my job could be at risk, but I still, I still continued. Um, and I actually, in the fall, I think in either late September or October, wrote a formal proposal to some of my peers saying, I thought we should weigh in on the subject of San Francisco school closures. Because at this point, there were more articles being published. There was a great one in ProPublica by Alec McGillis. Uh, David Zweig had written a few pieces. And so there was more and more coverage of the harms of school closures. And there were local doctors talking about, you know, adolescent suicide attempts and the ERs being just overwhelmed with young people with mental health issues. And so I thought, we are not shy about weighing in on social issues. Why not this? It affects our employees who can't really work with small children at home. And it affects the children of the city. And it, it was after the summer of the protests and the George Floyd murder. And we had weighed in on issues of pertaining to race and equality. And I thought, this is if this is time to put our money where our mouth is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. V- very different uh, flavor to those m- movements. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But you get where you see yeah, where I'm of course. Com- yeah. coming from here. Um, they were, you know, the response was fast and, and kind-ish. Like, we'll check. We appreciate your passion. Um, but ultimately, the decision was twofold. We don't weigh on, in on hyper-local issues, which I would sort of reject. And really, the clincher was, our kids go to private and it will make us look bad. Wait, they somebody actually said that? Yeah. it's. I mean, this whole story came to light, as I'm sure you know, because of a piece that I wrote for Barry Weiss's Common Sense. And I put the, the quote in there. I mean, the literal quote, I, I'm going to get it sort of wrong right now, but it was basically, you know, most of our executives send kids to private school. So... So yeah. it, the idea meaning that it's not going to, you're not going to get any in-house support because they don't have any skin in the game. Was it just that? No, practical? I think, I don't think that was it. I think it was more like, we'll look like elitist jerks because our kids go to private. Oh, but I mean, is, why isn't it the opposite? I See, that's where I am with it. I feel like we weigh in on a lot of stuff. We've been actively outspoken. I say we still. Levi's has been actively outspoken around, let's just say, LGBTQ issues for many years. Not all the leaders who have advocated for equality are gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans. You know, so why is being a member of a group, why is that what's required to to weigh in? In fact, it's more selfless in a sense if you're not. And my kids did go to public school. And so I said, you can use me as the face of it. You know, I am often a public spokesperson. I'll write an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle and we'll throw our weight, our local weight around a little bit. But the answer was no. And it's fall at this point. So my six-year-old is starting kindergarten virtually, which is a disaster. Uh, I mean, we just didn't make him do it. You know, he's six. He is in a Spanish immersion public kindergarten. He speaks Spanish. He can't read. You know, he, they give him an hour of instruction a day. He hates it. He doesn't want to do it. 
We don't make them because it's dumb. And playgrounds are still closed. So, you know, and I'm still working at home on Zoom. So my husband who stays home with the kids is trying to figure out what he can do with these two young children all day. And I'm assuming your husband was on your side. You guys were aligned with this. Yes, we were very much aligned from the beginning. He has a more aggressive tone. I have a very well-practiced diplomacy from years as a woman in the corporate world. And his his tweeting was became my problem too. I'll I'll be honest. That was certainly something I also got a lot of feedback on. And like I said, his tone in life and on Twitter is more aggressive than mine. Well, what kinds of things was he tweeting? Well, he he so I was very focused on kids in school. And we both started there. He was more aggressive about how he called out public health officials, but you know, to my mind, they deserved it. But he also talked more broadly about all of the issues, you know, vaccine mandates, vaccines. At a certain point in the, after the first year, he declared himself an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> I am vaccinated. So, you know, that was required for work and I did it, even though we weren't in the office. But, you know, his views were more aggressive. But, and so, you know, when, when his name came up, when I was getting feedback, my answer was simple. He doesn't work here. I, I really had nothing else to say on the matter. So all this is happening. There's all this controversy. It's very stressful for me, as you can imagine. But I got promoted, nonetheless, um, from chief marketing officer to brand president in October. Okay. So everything is settling down or what? what's the next well, I would think it was settling and then I'd get another call, you know, two or three weeks later. So it never really settled. And I never really, I mean, I didn't really stop. And at, at a certain point, we decided to move our family because it became clear that San Francisco schools were not going to open in the spring either. It just became so egregious. You know, the mayor had sued the school district. Uh, the school board was intransigent. The school board in San Francisco, as you may or may not know, three members were decisively recalled in February, largely because of their intransigence on this matter. So we decided we sort of gave up hope for the school's opening. My six-year-old kindergartner was really struggling. And, you know, I wanted him to have a little bit of school, you know, kindergarten. I didn't want this to be his first experience with school and to hate school. That's not what you want, right? You didn't consider putting them in private school? We talked about it. Um, I mean, I got to tell you, the private schools were all full. You know, everybody who could had already pulled their kids out to send them to private. So there really weren't any spots. But more important than that, I believe in the public school system. I have sent all my kids to public school. I, I don't know how to say it other than that. Like, I just... I don't want my kids to go to school in these sort of gated community type environments where everybody is from the same privilege that they are. I think part of school is being around people that are different than you. So you left San Francisco? You left California altogether? We left California. Uh, we, we, we talked about all different places. The primary filter was, are the schools open? We landed on Denver close enough to San Francisco that I could fly back and forth. I wasn't giving up my job. Our offices weren't opened, but, you know, I went in occasionally for certain 
meetings, you know, review the line, that kind of thing, product line, um, things you couldn't do virtually, really. And we thought it was temporary. You know, we thought we'll try Denver when the schools open again, we'll come back. Um, and we just took the younger kids. So my oldest child lived in an apartment at Berkeley. And then I had a high school senior who was almost done. Um, and he stayed with his dad for the remaining few months of the school year. Okay. His his dad is uh, d- different than yeah. the dad that's staying at home. Okay. Got it. Was there like back channel discussion within Levi's about these issues? Did you feel like you were completely uh, alone or? I was completely alone. So there were the somewhat diplomatic conversations that unfortunate candidates were told they needed to have with me Um, every few weeks or so. A board member, I mean, it was, and they all sort of walked on eggshells and my line continued to be the same, but there were back channel conversations about me, which I don't think I realized till quite a while into Like it. on Slack or like literally no, just we, offline? Like, we don't use right. Slack. We're right. sort of Luddites at Levi's. Um, no, like the head of corporate communication was sending a dossier of my tweets to my boss every day or every week that kind of thing. So nobody was coming to you. I mean, you've been at the company for 21 years, so presumably 22, you knew, uh, 22, right. You knew tons of people there. there you everyone. did not have any allies within no, the company. I had no, wow. I mean, friends might tiptoe up to the subject and say, is it really worth it? Why are you doing this? Um, but I think there was a general sense that I'd lost my mind. And nobody else had lost their minds in any other way. How were other people behaving, by the way? Because I want to kind of, I, I want to obviously hear the the whole arc of your story, but I also am really interested in like the culture within a company like Levi's. Is there just a kind of sort of monoculture and everybody's happy to be part of it? Yeah. Well, you know what? It's interesting. I think I, I think that less now than I did at the time because of some of the notes that I have gotten from people after the fact. I don't think everybody agrees. I don't think everybody um, is, you know, far, far, far left. But And remember, we have offices in Texas. We have distribution centers in Las Vegas. You know, so we have centers of employees outside of San Francisco and obviously offices around the world. But there is a real San Francisco ethos in the company, which I would say, as you indicated at the beginning of the, you know, in the opener, it was very much my ethos. You know, I would have called myself left of left of center. I supported Elizabeth Warren, as you mentioned. The only time in my life I had ever voted for anyone other than a Democrat was to vote further left for like a Green Party candidate. So, you know, it's a bubble, a San Francisco bubble. And I guess what I didn't really realize, because I was so much in the bubble, was that if you step, you know, one tiny step to the left or right, or, you know, anywhere veer in any way veer from that orthodoxy, which is really the party's orthodoxy, you will get, you're ejected, you know, you're an alt-right Koch brothers funded conspiracy theorist. That's what you are overnight. Right. And Never mind you, the Koch brothers fund like 
the theater and the opera. And I know. And I have not gotten a check. So <laughs> <laughs> I kept getting called an astroturfer, which I didn't even know what it was. I kept a what? An astroturfer. Oh, I don't know what that is. I didn't either. I had to look it up. I, I probably have to look it up again. But basically, it's like a lot of parents who were at, uh, op- you know, were advocating for open schools were accused of astroturfing. It's like we pretend to be this grassroots movement of parents, but we're really backed by this like right wing dark money. <laughs> I know it's oh. so funny. It sounds like it's so ludicrous on its face. It's like it's insane. But like actually gra- like the ter- astroturf is like the sort of metaphor for grassroots. That's a, it's a very literal it's metaphor. It's fake grassroots. I get yeah. it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. okay. I think you just made it make more sense to me that because okay. it all just seems so dumb. Um, but I, I should mention, sorry, what, you know, the whole thing got lit a little bit on fire because when I, I did do a tweet at this point also just know I was leading rallies in San Francisco. Like I was not just, you know, sitting there tweeting. All so you day. were obsessed with this. Is it fair to say you were doing your job, but this was your obsession? I was a thousand percent doing my job. You know, I'd just been rewarded and promoted. The business was coming back really strong on the strength of the brand. If you listen to any of our earnings calls or read any of the headlines, it's the brand, which I led that was credited with our, you know, strong emergence. So in no way can it be said I wasn't doing my job, but yes, I was, I mean, obsessed sounds bad, committed. Oh no, I didn't mean that <laughs> in a disparaging way. I actually think obsessed is good. I think pe- everybody be- during the pandemic uh, became obsessed in their own unique way with something. No, I, I actually think, obs- I, I would say like nothing in order to achieve anything, you have to be obsessed. Yeah. I mean, I was very committed. I really was just beside myself that 50,000 San Francisco public school children were toiling at home alone or not toiling at all. Like I just, after the sort of racial reckoning and all of this, like I could not believe we were doing this and I couldn't believe that we couldn't have a reasonable conversation on it. And that if you suggested that schools should be open and that we should do everything we could to prioritize kids and their well-being, that you were a racist. I mean, that was it. You were a ra- I got called a racist. I mean, I'll tell you. Yeah, and, and my older two children are mixed race. Their, their dad's black. And I, I, you know, hesitate to not using that to shield myself. But, you know, I was accused of wanting all black children to die. I mean, that's just ludicrous on its face. I don't want my children to die. And you're being accused of this online or to your face by people you know, by public people? A lot of different places. (laughs) But um, so, you know, the thing, it kind of, online, definitely. And it started to kind of blow up a little bit online. But this one thing happened, which I'll I'll mention, that kind of set the whole thing on fire. So when I, I did like a little tweet stream when we were moving to Denver with pictures of my six-year-old and it went slightly viral. I think Jake Tapper, somebody retweeted it. In what spirit did Jake Tapper retweet it? Actually, I'm curious. He, he didn't comment. So I don't know. It was just a, you know, not a quote tweet. A retweet. Okay, just <laughs> so I don't know. Cause he hadn't, you know, really covered, you know, he had yeah, I, I imagine, I, I think of him as being pretty agnostic on this, or at least he wasn't really get, 
play, you know, he was playing pretty close to the chest. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, CNN wasn't covering it, you know, the, the parent view anyway. They were covering the alarmist public health view. So that happened. And then I got a call from Fox. Because at this point, <laughs> as one does, as yes. one does, right. And I had gotten others and said no. Other calls from Fox, Fox or from right Yeah, I mean, they were the only ones. And I'll be honest, like my grassroots parent, my AstroTurf parent group had grown at this point that we were an army of moms across the country. We gave each other advice. We gave each other support. We talked to each other on the phone and on Zoom. Uh, the New York moms were amazing. Like we needed support. You know, our own friends shunned us. So I... The call, this this recent call on from Fox, okay, don't gasp too hard, but it was Laura Ingram. And I'm not gasping. This is okay. the show is so, called The Unspeakable. So okay. very little um, makes us gasp. And I'd been asked to do Fox and Friends and all these other shows, and I just sort of had ignored them or said no. And at this point, we're all just getting frantic, like this is gonna be the third season, you know, of school not being open. Like we're in like March or April at this point of 2021. It's just getting ridiculous. And we'd done outreach, our, you know, our little moms groups to quote unquote mainstream press, you know, New York Times, CNN, et cetera. Nobody would hear our view. So I got on the phone with a few of them and I was like, what do you think? Should I do this? Should I do Laura Ingram? And we kind of all agreed. Yeah, do it. Like it's a big platform. She's willing to cover it. You're, you've done a ton of media in your life. She's not going to get you to say anything that you don't believe. So I did it. Well, that was, that was. <laughs> How do you was, think it went? D- like, d- did you think you got your point across and that I it did. was a fair interview? I stand by everything I said. I stand by going on the show you know, they might want to use me a little bit. I'm red meat, right? This former liberal who's now from the, yeah, from their perspective, you know, joined their team. But I stand by everything I said. You know, I, I can't remember now what she asked me at the end. I think she tried to corner me a little, but I never fell for it. You know, I I stuck to my talking points and I stand by everything I said. I don't I don't regret it. Um, but it in a sense was the beginning of the end for me, really. So at this point, you know, you asked, where's all this feedback coming from? So I think people are sending emails to HR. They're sending emails. I don't know any of this. I learned this after the fact. Um, They're sending emails to my boss. You know, I'm anti-science. I am racist. I hate old people, all these things. And we also are concurrently, we're doing these town halls like every two weeks at work because, you know, we're not all together. And they're basically just our boss, you know, my boss, the CEO, talking about stuff and taking questions. And I'm always in the select group of people that's in like the green room answering some of the questions in the chat. And some of those questions are like not posted, like they pop up, you know, in a backpack room. Some of them then get posted. And there are a lot. They're not really questions, they're comments about and and keep in mind comments and posts can all be anonymous which really just unleashes the worst right. and is this everybody in the company who's invited to this and how large is the company what how many uh, employees Most, are there? many thousands i mean each of these meetings is probably 2000 people and then another one or 2000 watch it recorded so some of the questions or comments get posted most of them say you know in the back back room 
And they're just comments that I, you know, am anti-trans, not totally sure where that trans. I, I Maybe they were look, confused with the AstroTurf. Maybe they thought yeah, it was T-E-R-F. I think it was, <laughs> I think it's because I'm extrapolating. I believe because probably Laura Ingram is anti-trans. I oh, don't even know. I don't I even know if she is. But you, okay. Well, I don't know if she is. I, I mean, I think she's made some. I mean, I don't think she's a, the biggest ally in the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think she's made some anti-gay comments, most of which are from a very long time ago. I think her brother is actually gay. I, I don't really know. But this idea that you are the things that a person that you might talk to is, is just, I, I reject it. It's ludicrous. It's, it's so dumb. But so there's all these comments, anonymous comments about, you know, what a horrible racist, anti-trans, anti-science person I am and, and, and how awful my husband is. And, you know, what are you going to do about it, Chip? That's the CEO. So at one of the town halls, I wasn't there. I was out. It was like Passover or something. And my understanding after the fact was that he did defend me. And he said, and, and I think this is an important part of the story because I don't see why this couldn't have been the stance going forward. You don't have to agree with everything she says. She's a mom. She's standing up for her kids and she's not doing it on behalf of the company. So we support her right to say it. This is, and, this is Chip, the, the president. The yeah, CEO the, the CEO. And I, I, I learned after the fact I wasn't there and I wrote him and I said, thank you. But that was really the end of any kind of support. <laughs> that was it. Did he get heat for that? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I did, you know, at this point, because then the calls just kept coming. You know, I sort of thought, oh, phew, uh, that's done. And at this point, you know, I'm still doing a great job. The company is, the brand is recovering, all of these things. But I think what's happening, and, you know, I have limited visibility to what's happening behind the scenes around me. You know, I think the emails keep coming to him and that's upsetting. The dossiers of my tweets keep coming. And then I get some very committed trolls, you know, who are tagging Levi's and, and calling for my firing and, and saying, boy, you know, hashtag boycott Levi's. There's some Reddit. Uh, I don't, I've never been on Reddit. Um, there's some petition on Reddit all these people that all these people, it's like 50 ex gymnasts that want me fired. I think some of them started calling the ethics hotline, but you know, none of it got a ton of traction, but you know, if you're being given a, like I said, like a packet of my tweets and then like, he's not looking at the traction, right? It's like one piece of paper. It's the same as if it's a New York times headline, like it all has the same weight. There's no context or scale. Right. And you would think that people, high level people in a corporation would understand that. One, one would think, but when you have, yes, one, I, I, I have no response to that. Yes. You would think that, but it's like, I don't know. I was like embarrassing them or something. I, I was just so out of bounds of anything anyone in San Francisco was willing to say. It's like, you would think that I was tweeting the N-word and like eating babies. It was sort of like kind of astonishing. And there was just no sense of scale, you know? It was, and you have to understand if everyone that you know is locked at home wearing two N95s 
and, you know, hanging on to every word from Dr. Fauci or our local public health leaders, then I just seem like an insane person. You know, I seemed like an insane person. Did you ever wonder if you were insane? I didn't. Yeah. With so much of this stuff, I mean, I have conversations with people all the time about various iterations of this kind of conflict. And, you know, I think it's it's easy to just, you know, a lot of people say, am I crazy? Am I insane? Am I missing something? But the fact that you have a coalition of people who agreed with you, I, I, th- I think that makes a huge difference. And I think that's why so many people are coming together in these in these groups. So, okay, so... Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I didn't... I, you know, it, it's you raise a really good point because I think one of the reasons I also persisted is I got so many emails and so many DMs from people who were alone, totally alone in this view, whose kids were really suffering. Like kids, kids were struggling, man, you know? They still are. And maybe a mom who was the only one in her community who was willing to say something. And it sounds really corny, but they felt less alone that they knew that I was willing to say these things, you know? Um, And that mattered to me. After a quick break, I'm going to resume my conversation with Jennifer Say, and we're going to talk about the role that her career in elite gymnastics and her outspokenness about abuses inside USA Gymnastics had in her crusade to reopen schools during the COVID pandemic. Stay with us. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, 
back to the interview. I want to finish the the story about your your tenure at Levi's, but is this the moment where we want to introduce the the gymnastics factor? You you said a few minutes ago that some of your old gymnastics yeah. uh, peers were, you know, were they the ones reporting you to the ethics board of the of the gymna- U.S. gymnastics? Is that what you mean? Or no, they were calling on? like Levi's has an ethics. Oh, okay, hotline. okay. So okay. so like meant like if if somebody is you know, embezzling money or something, you can anonymously call the ethics hotline um, and report a person. Okay. Um, So what is the role of the gymnastics world in in responding to you? Is that a factor here? Yeah, I think so. Um, So I'll give that. I I will come back at the end to kind of how it all totally finally ended. But yes, um, you know, it's, it's this. So I was elite gymnast as a child, which you mentioned. I was on the national team for seven years. It's a an incredibly abusive and cruel coaching environment. It is just the culture. It was the 80s, but it's still the culture. And I had an eating disorder. I had really severe injuries. I trained on a broken ankle for two years. Uh, we were fat shamed. I mean, I could go on and on about how awful it is. It's all fairly well documented at this point. There were pedophiles in our midst everywhere. The national team coach in the 80s who I traveled with around the world raped a very close friend of mine. And we were just surrounded by it, you know, and you were you knew that you were not supposed to open your mouth, you know. So and and this coaching methodology was just normal. If you had an issue with it, if you were suffering, if you were struggling, then it's because you were weak. And so then you internalize all of this shame. It's, you know, very abusive. And so when I left the sport in the spring of 1988, just completely beaten down, um, depressed, PTSD, all sorts of things, I struggled for a really long time, you know, and I found myself in my late 30s still sort of struggling, even though I had like a really good normal life. I had two kids. I think I was a VP at Levi's at the time. I was married. But I had persistent issues with anxiety, depression, you know, self-esteem. I just believed everything was my fault. I internalized everything. Um, You know, a therapist once explained it to me, like if a parent beats a child, they say, I wouldn't have to do this if you weren't bad. That was basically my whole life. Like I, my whole childhood, I, you know, I wouldn't have to scream at you that you're a fat pig if you weren't such a fat pig. I wouldn't have to berate you about how lazy you are if you weren't so goddamn lazy. Meanwhile, my ankle's broken, you know, so everything was my fault and you grow up with that and you learn to kind of like tuck it away, but it's like there all the time. And that doesn't make for a very healthy human being <laughs> as you might imagine. Did it make you very achievement oriented? Was this working in sort of inverse proportion to your professional success? You know, that is a good question. I think I was achievement oriented anyway, but that reinforced it if you see what I'm saying, like it validated it because it did make me this very hardworking, good girl, you know? Right. So you're just actually doing it to yourself. You, you've replaced the external voices and not, now you're sort of punishing yourself. Yeah. Although I let people into my life that weren't particularly kind, you know, because that's what I was used to. 
Okay. So, all right. So the, the world of gymnastics has, you know, set up this kind of mentality to be stoic, to suck it up, don't complain. So that sounds like that was a factor in how um, people from your gymnastics community were responding to your activism. Well, what I, what I was, what, what is an important part of the story, I guess, regarding this gymnastics community is, so I sort of struggled for 20 years and I eventually wrote a book, a memoir about my experience in gymnastics. And I, you know, I sat down to write it sort of just to like purge, you know, the experience and kind of try to understand it and make sense of it. I wasn't a writer. I didn't think I could get it published, um, but I did. So this book comes out just a few months before the Olympics in 2008. I didn't tell anyone at work I'd written a book, not mostly because I didn't want them to think that my attention or energy was diverted away from work. Like I didn't want them to doubt my commitment. You know, if there was a promotion on the table, I didn't want anyone to think, well, she just wants to be a writer. You know, know, women keep parts or did, I, I don't anymore, but you know, I grew up in the nineties in corporate culture. Like I didn't have pictures of my kids on my desk. You know, you just didn't want to seem not committed. I know you've written about this. You you wrote about it in Barry Weiss's newsletter and you've talked about it elsewhere, but maybe you can just take us through uh, the actual moment where you were, were you fired or you were asked to resign and then you were um, given the opportunity to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement? Yeah, it's a little, it is complicated. So you know, it all continued that like, please stop. Okay. I'd pause for a while and then I wouldn't stop. And at this point I've written, you know, a handful of op-eds and like, I just keep, you know, I just keep going. And at a certain point I have dinner with my boss. I go back to San Francisco from Denver and we have dinner. And he, he says to me, this is like in the fall of 21, you know, you really could be the CEO which had not really been a discussion we'd had. I mean, I have, I thought I could be. Um, but, you know, given my history at the company, like I spent excessive amounts of time in roles. Like, like I said, I was eight years as a CMO, which is unheard of. I was probably ready for the next job about two or three years in. Like, it, as you hear with a lot of women in corporate America, I just, you know, men get the job based on potential and women get it after they've proven they can do it for five years. So, you know, it wasn't like this active conversation to be CEO. And to be honest, I didn't even know if I wanted it. You know, I've been this like reluctant corporate leader for the entire 25, 30 years that I've done it. So I wasn't pushing the conversation per se, but he says, you could really, you could be the CEO. This is what you need to do. You know, we're going to, you need a coach, fine. And you need to, your social media is a problem. You need to chill out. And I said, you know, and he noted this later that this took some foresight. I said, you know, if that's the problem, I think it's probably too late, right? Like I've already been out there for 18 months saying the things I've said, I stand by them, but you know, you're going to view it as too controversial for a CEO. Um, And he said, well, maybe that's not true. You could be right. Maybe not. Let's do a background check. And it's pretty typical if you're going to be a CEO that they do a background check. You know, they check for financial entanglements. Did you ever go to prison? And then, of course, you know, there would be sort of an overhaul or, a you know, a, a big look at my my social media. And at this point, I have more followers, like not a crazy amount, maybe like 20,000 or something. 
Um, and I have some very committed trolls, as I mentioned. Anonymous? Is that where they are? Yes. Yeah. Um, mostly with no followers, one with a significant number. And so I said, yes, you can do the background check. And he said they had to do it on my husband too. And I agreed. And I sort of knew what the outcome would be. And I think I might've even told him, I said, you're going to, this is what you're going to find. I have no financial entanglements. I've never been to jail. Um, I've never done anything illegal. Well, that you know about or will find. And that's sort of half joking. And you're going to think that, you know, my social media is going to be a gray area and you're going to decide it's, it's too much. That's what's going to happen. And that's what happened. So, um, well, I don't know if it was gray. It's not like I ever saw the report. So I haven't heard from him, you know, it's months. I said to my husband, should I ask? He's like, no, just let it play out. Um, and then finally, you know, I think in early January, we have a meeting and that's basically what he tells me is there's just not a place for you going forward. You can't be the CEO. And that means you can't have your current job because in corporate parlance, you're a blocker. Wait, what? Okay. Explain this. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, he's, how old is he? Probably mid sixties. He's going to retire soon. One of the things that he, the most important thing he's tasked with is finding his replacement, right? That's what the board has said. You have to find your replacement and we'll have a smooth transition, right? You're not just going to quit and we're going to be like, oh shit, who's CEO, right? They're going to have a smooth transition. And ideally it will be someone internal because that smooths the transition, right? And so if it's not you and, you know, you look at his leadership team and there's probably two, maybe three, but just two of the roles that report to him that could viably be a CEO. And I'm one of them. And the other one had left the company just a couple weeks earlier. So basically, I'm in a seat for a future CEO, but I can't be the CEO. So I have to go. So effectively, you have to leave the company. That's right. Not effectively. I mean, like literally. (laughs) I want to talk to you just about the relationship between a lot of these social justice movements and corporate branding. You know, I've had a lot of different guests on this show, journalists, scientists, various opinion havers, and I I have not delved very much into the corporate world at all. Um, It's not part of my experience. Nobody in my immediate family worked for a a big corporation. It's just not, it's, I, I know very little about it. But I do have a lot of people on here, myself included, talking about just the sort of scourge of virtue signaling all over the place in brand identities and advertising campaigns um, and wondering how effective they are because it, it seems just so transparently opportunistic from the outside. And I wonder how it, how it goes down on the inside. Yeah. Well, oh, that's a good question. So I think, and I'm wrestling with this a little bit now because I was responsible for some of it. I led a lot of it. I was the chief marketing officer for eight years, right? I think that the Levi's attitude, so it had, we sort of touted this mantra of profits through principles that I think 
you know, Bob Haas, who's like the great, great grand nephew of Levi Strauss himself, really sort of furthered. And he believed in, you know, he had been in the Peace Corps, like he thought you could run business in a very ethical kind of way that respected human rights. And most of the things that we had done throughout the, I would even start in the 50s and the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was about policies that impacted our employees and we didn't talk about them. So we integrated factories in the South before the law required it. We offered same-sex partner benefits in 1992. We were the first, Levi's was the first Fortune 500 company to do so. I support these things. I think it's a solid way to run your business, right? And and the, the idea was we could run our business ethically. We could take care of our employees, which, by the way, Henry Ford talked about in the 20s, you know, didn't he famously say something about, you know, they wanted to build a car that every employee could afford. But running companies for the employees, although to some extent that's happening now, that fell out of favor and you started running them for shareholders. Anyway, for many, many years, decades, Levi sought to sort of do the right thing in that regard. And I support that. I I do support that. But somewhere around, I don't know, 2015, 16, we started to talk about like, should we take more public stances? Should we be more public about these things? And and I was part of that conversation and I was leading a lot of it. So, well, but at a certain point, it's not just taking a stance, but it's turning these these causes into actual ad campaigns, right? For sure. Yeah. And, you know, full, I did it. It was me. <laughs> and I, you know... There's a campaign that I led that I still feel proud of. So I'll just put this out there. It was, it's called the Circles Campaign. And it's this ad and there's people dancing and they're all different people from all different walks of life, basically. And they're, they're dancing the same dance, but you cut all around the world and see all different kinds of people. And it was my idea. I, it was after Trump had gotten elected and the company just felt so divided. Little did I know we would get even more divided. And I felt like, we could put a message out there that's about connection because there's this really interesting thing about Levi's, which is everybody wears them, right? Minivan moms and B-boys and punk rockers and cowboys. And like, we're all sort of united in this difference. And it felt like this metaphor to me, which I thought was cool, right? Like we're united in our difference. So it's not overtly political, It's just this notion of like, we all wear Levi's and we're all connected. And it's sort of joyous, the ad. There's dancing, like you can't watch it and not smile. I mean, you might vomit on it, but I still think (laughs) it's really It's a fine line between smiling and vomiting sometimes. (laughs) Right. But But it's, you know, it has a really, whatever. It has a very uplifting, joyful tone. But there is an undercurrent of, of politics, but I think in a really sort of positive way. Anyway. Um, that was mine. We won all kinds of awards. The fans loved it, et cetera. But we did more overt things too. You know, we've had a pride. Levi's has had a collection for pride for over a decade. It's been a very LGBTQ positive company. They've been very vocal publicly about that. So I did an amicus brief for gay marriage back in, I don't even know what year, 2008, I think. And sustainability has been part of the messaging because that's how we make, you know, that's how the product is made. So, you know, talking about more sustainable ways of making product, for instance. Um, and then, you know, it's just gotten, there's gotten, 
there's more and more. There's been campaigns about women's equality. There's been, and I think most of the campaigns from the Levi's brand are really just sort of uplifting. There's stances that the company takes that are much more overtly political, if that makes sense. So Levi's might run advertising, but Levi Strauss and company might write an open letter or an op-ed in Fortune that companies need to take a stand on gun safety legislation and get a thousand other CEOs to sign it. So there's, there's like the corporate side and then there's the brand side. Is there evidence that that either of those, well, I mean, obviously an ad campaign, we know if it works or not, but something like taking a stance, does that affect the bottom line? So I think because the ad campaigns walk the right line, if that makes sense, because they're still showing genes. So like if we did a Women's History Month ad campaign, called I Shape My World that's about genes that have shaping. and Like, it's more of a genes campaign still. It's just featuring women. Those work and are very effective. You, we've seen brands go wrong. I mean, I don't know if you remember the Pepsi debacle with Kendall Jenner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'd like to know how that got conceived. I would just love to be in the Be- it just misguided there. ad <laughs> misguided ad execs. So you do remember it. That one, that one met the mainstream. Look, the ad campaigns we we had run during my tenure absolutely grew the business. You know, I'll just say that. Yeah, like we were more popular than we'd been in over a decade. We were selling a lot of jeans. People love the brand. But there it it did get in the, in my last two years, and this is outside of COVID, it got too much. Like I was the one screaming and going, we got to sell the jeans. Like, and it was the employees agitating for more and more statements. And you have to understand that doesn't just take up media dollars. It takes up brain space for all the people that are, you know, supposed to be working on this other stuff. And I think it's divided fans, you know, for, for the brand. I think the feeling is generally, we need to attract younger consumers Younger consumers care about this and they want to know what you think. And so we've got to do this. But, you know, Levi's in particular is a very balanced brand, Republicans and Democrats buy Levi's. And so one can only imagine that over time you alienate at least as many as you. Yeah, because I mean, it seems like I've, I feel like I've read a, a fair amount of evidence to suggest that it, in the, at the end of the day, it really doesn't work. I mean, I think we, Gillette famously, the whole, um, you know, changing a best a man can get to the best a man can be uh, was kind of a dud. Uh, if you remember that during the Super Bowl a few years ago, they had the kind of Me Too themed <laughs> Gillette razor ad. I mean, Budweiser UK in 2019, I don't know if you remember this, had a whole campaign around Gay Pride Month, and they were offering beer cups representing every possible iteration of gender identity, like every flag, every, you know, beer beer mugs wow. decorated as the flags, including like the as- asexual flag and the demisexual flag. Pansexual and the, flag. Yeah. And it's like, well, wow. first of all, this is Budweiser UK. Like just everything about it seemed I so, it was such an overreach. And you would be astonished at how bad ideas can be in a 
in a, you know, a brainstorming room of creatives who live in a bubble. Yeah, there's some remarkably bad ideas. And that they go all the way to the top. That's what's like, who approved this, I guess, is always what we wonder. There's like, you know, and I rejected a lot of terrible ideas like that, that I got from, you know, agencies and, and creatives. I was like, yeah, we're not, that's not how we're doing this. But I, it's like, People are just desperate. I think I'm still sort of thinking through this, but I think businesses, look, business used to be the purview of the right, right? We looked at business leaders as, you know, evil, greedy Republicans who didn't want to be regulated. And now really, if we're honest, the businesses that hold the most influence and sway are the purview of the left. Tech companies are the purview of the left. And so there's been this complete upending or reversal. And I think a lot of companies are filled with young left people. And I think that leaders are anxious to satisfy the employee population and they apply a lot of pressure. They're not shy. And I think companies are eager to prove that they're not like the oil companies of the past. Like we are business with a kinder face, you know, and we are business that cares. And so I think they're really eager to tout their, you know, well, credentials. And it all seems to make sense when you're like in this loop, this closed loop of people who want to do the same. And you don't realize how it's going to read or it's going to land. And you do a Pepsi commercial that's so stupid that it seems just sort of amazing that anybody would have thought that was ever a good idea. Well, okay, but the, you know, the activists would say it's still a bunch of white men at the at the top of these companies and are, are they doing this to save their butts or are they like what's the impetus? But the activists are, look, the activists that dominate the conversation on either side is a small percentage. So, you're not targeting the activists, you're targeting everybody else that is eager to say the right thing and use the Facebook profile frame that says they support Ukraine, but not really do anything like that's who you're talking to. You're not talking to the activists. Right. And why is it that there's such an inability to stand up to employees? Like I'm thinking of situations in publishing where, you know, people threaten to quit if you publish a uh, this book by Woody Allen or whoever. And I, you know, it's easy for me, people like me to sit on the outside and say, why don't these people just step up? But I think we forget there are a lot of people being answered to, including boards of directors. It's a great question. I just heard David Sachs talking about this. I think, I don't know, because I would tell employees, you know, stop. It's enough. This is how we're doing it. But I think a lot of leaders are just actually kind of weak and go with the flow and they feel this intense pressure. You know, most CEOs are older. Obviously, you need enough experience to, unless you're a tech founder, you need enough experience to have climbed the ladder. They don't want to seem old. They want to seem with it. It's a lot of noise. They're getting emails and they're getting DMs if they're even on social media and they're not used to it. And they just, they don't stand up to it. They're they're joiners in the end. They're not leaders. They're not leaders, even though they are leaders. Like, are they, is there something about corporate leadership that makes one 
maybe predisposed to going with the flow? I don't think it's just corporate leaders. Well, no, it's uh, that's true. It's university leaders. It's institutional leaders. They're all just like succumbing to the pressure. I think people who are really willing to stand up and say a thing and deal with the backlash and the opprobrium and know that it will pass, they are few and far between. And and where are they? I mean, the leaders won't lead. Okay, the people who are willing to stand (laughs) up are people like us. So we're the ones speaking up, but we're not leading anything at the moment. We're not. No, I'm unemployed. Um, Yeah, but I, in my heart of hearts, believe that we are an important part of the conversation. And I believe that individuals absolutely can make a difference. And I am free to say whatever I want and believe at this point. And that's a gift. And I think that the conversation in the two weeks following the Barry piece was an important start, whether it was on CNBC with Andrew Ross Sorkin or, you know, in the New York Times about free speech and how companies need to wrestle with this one. And I, individuals can make a difference. Your voice is important. I listen to your show. I was one athlete that was pretty good, but not great. I was not an Olympian. People said, you're, you can't make a difference. And I did, but I was willing to say a very unpopular thing. And I was willing to be called a lot of names for a very long time. And you know what? It sounds corny, but courage begets courage. And I've gotten literally thousands of emails from athletes telling me about the abuse they endured and asking advice or just saying thank you. And those thousands of athletes, they're they're an army now. And they're actually changing the sport. They are. It's a long road, but they are. And so, you know what? Someone has to go first. And we may not be leading organizations, but that doesn't mean we're not leading. And I am choosing to be unencumbered so that I can say what I need to say. And, you know, we were talking about Sarah Heppel's piece. I mean, there's self-censorship even when you're not beholden to an organization, but I'm trying my best not to censor myself. Well, I'm really glad because this has been a fantastic conversation and I'm, I'm really grateful. I guess um, I, I can't help but ask what do you have any plans at the moment? You've got something cooking or you going to have a sub stack? <laughs> I am not. I am going to resist the sub stack. Okay, I think that's pretty easy to resist. I, mean. I, I think so. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I do have some plans. I, um, I am making a documentary about the impact of the school closures on the nation's children. So we are actively shooting and raising money for that which is, I don't like the money raising part. That's hard asking people for money, but I like the creating part. So I'm super excited about that. And we have some amazing folks who have already appeared in it. And we found incredible families who are willing to tell their stories. And if you have any wealthy listeners that are interested in donating or investing. If I had, can... if I had wealthy listeners or relatives, <laughs> uh, we wouldn't be having the, uh, the audio challenges that we've been having. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I'm making a documentary and I'm writing a book. Oh, good. Yeah. About all of this? Yeah. Well, yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's kind of a, me- it's a memoir. It's about 
you know, we use this platitude, use your voice, use your voice, but it's really hard. It's not such an easy thing. And so it's kind of about like, how do you kind of screw up your courage to do that is the best I can describe it right now. It's weirdly coming out much more easily than I thought it would. So that's exciting. Um, and at some point, like I have no plan to go back to corporate, but weirdly, and this was stunning to me, I got a lot of calls. I have gotten a lot of calls um, for corporate jobs. So if I need to do that at some point or want to do that, that is a door that is apparently open to me still. Wow. That pretty much says it all. That's pretty stunning. I, You know what it says, honestly? And I, I said to people when they called me, recruiters or whatever, like, do you guys know what just happened? And they're like, yeah, we want, we're done with all this. That's what they want. They want someone who will stand up to employees and stand up to the mob and just, you know, lead the brand and not be beholden to this orthodoxy. Wow. Um, actually, what you just said about the corporate opportunities is like the most hopeful thing I've heard in a long time. That, that bodes very well for the future. Uh, yeah, I was a gog. Um. Yeah, well, um, that's really amazing, actually. Well, Jen, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation, and um, I'm grateful to you for coming on, and I hope we can uh, take it up again sometime. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Jennifer Say. Jen spent close to 23 years at Levi Strauss and Company, holding a variety of leadership positions, including global brand president. She was the first woman to hold that post. She's also a former elite gymnast, the U.S. national all-around champion in 1986. In 2008, she released a memoir, Chalked Up, and she's also the producer of the Emmy award-winning documentary, Athlete A, about abuses within competitive gymnastics. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you know the drill by now. Visit Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join our community of listeners. Or if you're not into Patreon, you can make a one-time donation in any amount at the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. You can leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive, preferably five stars. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.